We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 20 this morning and uh, this first commandment. Uh, and I'm really excited to see what the Lord has for us as we, as we look at this. You see, the thing about this, as we look at the, the idea of the Ten Commandments, is that the law of God is distinct and unique in human history. There's nothing like this. There's nothing like these things that God has to say to his people, uh, to them then and, and passing them along to us even today. And uh, I'm just excited to be able to jump into it with you and, and take a look at what uh, uh, our God has to say from these timeless laws and what he thinks is important. In fact, Psalm 19 verses 7 through 9 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And when you read through that, that little piece, what it says in Psalm there, and just talking about the, the law of God, the commands of God, the precepts of God, just everything about what God has to say, essentially what it's telling us is that God is right that God is, is the one who's in the position of, uh, I'm, I'm always right, I'm always righteous, I'm never wrong. And uh, the way that the Bible describes it elsewhere, uh, like in James, is to say that he's light and there's no shadow in him at all. Uh, that's what First John talks about as well. Uh, just that, that this is the, the message that we heard from him and declare to you, that in him is light and there's no darkness in God whatsoever. There's not, there's not like hidden parts of him that are, are somehow, uh, he's hiding things or he's trying to, uh, you know, let you see the shiny thing over here to, to direct your attention over here while he does something else over there. That's not the way that God works. That, that God is perfect and he's right and he's true and he's, he's holy and he's chosen to reveal himself and he reveals himself specifically in Exodus 20 through his law. And as we go through this, as we look into this together, my hope, my prayer is that you and I, our hearts will be challenged and our hearts will be changed by looking at what God has to say through this. Um, because God has some pretty uh, uh, incredible things to reveal to us through his law. So here's our big idea as we look at this first commandment together today. We're going to spend a week on each one of them. Uh, and so that's, where it, that's why it's a 10-week series. See how I did that? 10 weeks, 10 laws. I'm smart. All right, so uh, first one is this. There's only one true and living God. That's the big idea. There's only one true and living God. So let's read Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll break it down together. It says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, God, as we open it up and as we seek you together, we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, as we, as we consider the things that you have to say, the stuff that you think is important, the things that you took time to declare and to have written down and, and to have passed down from generation to generation all the way to us today, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand you, that we wouldn't just see uh, the words of Allah, that we wouldn't just see uh, some distant uh, God that is passing down decrees, but that we would see that you've invited us in to see who you are. And that we would be changed because of being in your presence. And so Lord, we pray today as we start this series that you would bless our time in your word and that you would encourage us in it and that we would grow as a result. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today as we look at Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 in this first 
commandment of the Lord. We're going to look at it in four parts together today, all right? The first part is the verses one through two, a God who speaks, and then the rest of the three parts are in verse three, a choice to make, a reality to grasp, and a priority to establish. Now, before we jump into Exodus 20, you'll, you know, you'll notice we're right in the middle of a book, and so I want to kind of catch us up to speed. Where are we at in the biblical narrative? And I think it's really important for us to grasp this because context is absolutely necessary for us to not only be able to understand what's happening and what what we're looking at, but also how do we apply this to our lives individually and corporately as well. We've got to be able to understand the context in order to understand it. Really, you know, when when we go back, we could keep going back and back and back to the very beginning. God creates people, you know, all that kind of stuff. But really, the story starts in in Genesis chapter 12 with a man named Abram, who God later changes his name to Abraham. And he takes this man and his wife, Sarai, whose later name, her name is changed to Sarah. And he takes this family and he says, I'm going to make you into a nation. And ultimately, from this nation, Jesus Christ is going to come into human history in order to save humanity. And so God chooses this guy, and his family forms a nation around him. Uh, And Abraham Abraham and Sarah, they're barren. They can't have any kids. And God miraculously gives them a son, Isaac. And then Isaac gets married to Rebekah, and they are barren. And then God miraculously gives them twins. And then uh, one of those sons, uh, Jacob... He is, uh, uh, he has lots of sons, um, and there's a lot of drama going on with that. You can read about that in Genesis if you want. You don't need to watch daytime TV. Just read your Bible. There's lots of crazy going on in there. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Well, one of the things that he does, uh, Jacob does, is he has one of his sons that's his favorite. Parents, little tip, that's a bad idea. When you do that, you create all sorts of tension and chaos and strife within your home. And so ja- uh, Jacob says, one of my kids is my favorite. I like Joseph better than the others. Gives him a, a cool shiny coat and uh, makes him in charge of his older brothers, which any one of you who are the older, you're like, well, I don't, I'm not submitting to my younger sibling. Uh, you know, that's just, so there's a lot of strife. And they decide, here's a plan. We're going to, uh, we're going to sell him into slavery. And so they throw him in a pit. They come up with this plan. They tell their dad he's dead. They sell him into slavery. The slave traders take him down to Egypt, and he ends up a slave in uh, a prominent official's house named Potiphar. And things go from bad slavery to worse. He gets falsely accused and thrown in prison. Now, prison in that time wasn't super happy. Uh, it wasn't a great place to go, and it's not really great today, but it was way worse back then. And so he's in prison. Things go from bad to worse, and then God brings, uh, he's going to bring bring a famine on the land of Egypt and the surrounding region and area. And so God uses this famine to do a couple of things. Well, three things, really. He gets Joseph out of prison through the famine. He causes Joseph to ascend to the number two spot in all of uh, the Egyptian uh, government, which is the most powerful nation on the planet up to that date the most powerful nation in history up until that date. He ascends to the number two position only under Pharaoh himself, and God reunites this family, brings them back together. Now, this uh, family comes together. They, they're living in Egypt. They're there for about 
uh, uh, there's about 70 of them there and they're there for about 440 years. They go for a short stay in order to avoid the famine just to survive and it ends up being 440 years. And so after this 440 years times there, over that time they end up becoming slaves in Egypt and God takes these 70 people and he turns them into not just a big family but into a nation of two to three million while they're there in Egypt. And then the people in their slavery, in their their abusive situation, they cry out to God and they say, God, we need you to deliver us. And so God hears their cry and he raises up a man named Moses. He's both the prophet and this uh, administrator or this uh, go-between or this uh, mediator between God and man. And, and, And Moses points us to Jesus, that there's someone who can be our mediator between God and man. And Moses comes and he brings with him deliverance. And the way he does so is that 10 plagues miraculously come upon the nation of Egypt and uh, they culminate in this final plague, the 10th plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Now, this is a this is a terrible, terrible kind of thing. How many of you, just by show of hands, uh, are men are the firstborn? I, I'm the firstborn. Anybody the firstborn? All right, so all of you are dead. Uh, any of you have sons that are the firstborn? Anybody, even women, you know, they're all dead too, right? So like that's, that's a bad day, right? That's not like, like death is bad when we have it, you know, just one or two people die in our families. But imagine all of that death all of a sudden happening all at once. It's overwhelming. And so God brings this death into uh, the, the land of Egypt and there's only one way to get out. There's one provision made to get out. It's that you take a pure, spotless lamb and you sacrifice that lamb as a substitute for you, for the firstborn to die. And then you take the blood of that lamb and you put it over your door as a, a public profession of your trust in and your faith in God. And then when death comes, it literally passes over your house and death doesn't come to your house, hence the name Passover. That's the Jewish Passover. And all of this is foreshadowing Jesus, right? Jesus is the pure spotless lamb. That's what John said. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's by his blood that we don't experience eternal death, but that we have the hope of eternal life, right? And then God delivers his people through this. Pharaoh's like, get out. You guys are terrible. Your God's crazy, right? Little does he know if he would have just repented, he could have been a part of the family of God as well. And yet he hardened his heart against the things of God. And I wonder, as we think about Pharaoh and him hardening his heart, how many, how many of us tend to harden our hearts against the things of God? And we end up in a position where, where we endure things, we endure trial, we endure hardship, we endure struggle that we never should. And it's simply because of a hardness of heart. Because this whole thing of Passover and choosing to sacrifice the lamb and putting the blood on the doorposts and, and over the top of the door, that whole thing is, is symbolic of a soft heart that's willing to do the stuff that God wants. That God says, this is how, when you are willing to say, I'll humbly submit myself to the ways of God. You see, when you submit yourself to the ways of God, it's life. But when you harden yourself against the ways of God, it just produces death. And so the people are made free by the blood of the lamb and they're miraculously delivered. All of it pointing to Jesus and our hope in him that he substituted himself on our behalf that we might become 
redeemed and part of God's family. Now, after God frees his people, after he delivers his people, he takes them across the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And one of the first things, now when you hear wilderness, don't think like Rocky Mountains. It's not that kind of wilderness, right? Like like desert, okay? Uh, Rocks, brown, lots of brown. Uh, and so he's, they're out in the, the desert and God takes them to a mountain called Mount Sinai and there he wants to have a family meeting. All right, hey guys, uh, I want to talk to you about some things. Turns out you've been living in Egypt for a long time. There are lots of pagan practices that have woven themselves into the fabric of your culture and we've got to fix this stuff. So God calls a family meeting and that's where we find ourselves in Exodus 20. God's calling the family meeting. He's saying, I got some stuff to say. I got some things that we got to work through, some stuff we've got to talk about. And so let's talk through all of these things together. Now, the the big thing before we jump into this is that we've got to understand that the law, without the law giver, makes the law about a moralistic religious obligation by which I try to buy God's affection. That, That if we don't understand that God's not giving this because he's saying, hey, if you guys do these things, here's my top 10 list. If you are good and you do all my top 10, then I'll adopt you as my kids. It's the exact opposite. God has already loved them. God has already redeemed them. God has already purchased them. God has already adopted them. God has already provided for them. God has already called them his own. There's no gaining his affection. There's no getting into his good graces. There's no earning their way into God's presence even more so somehow. No, this is a, because you're my kids, this is how our family's gonna function. Very much the way that I am with my own kids. I don't let them just do whatever they want because I love them. I say, this is what it means to be in the King family. And so if you're going to be a part of the King family, which you are because you were born that way, sorry if you don't like it, but this is the way our family works. These are the things you're going to do. These are the things you're not going to do. And there are consequences associated with this kind of stuff. And God calls a family meeting the very, very same way. He's already done everything for them. He's already provided and cared for them. He's already adopted them and set them free. But now he's saying this, now that you are free, I want you to live free. And here's how. And so this is, this is what he goes into. All right, so let's look at these first, uh, this first piece together, verses one through two. A God who speaks. Notice there in verse one, it says this, and God spoke all these words saying. Notice who's speaking. It's not Moses that's speaking. It's not, this isn't Moses' law. This isn't Moses' words. This isn't, you know, there's, there's not like a council of super wise guys with really cool beards that got together and they're like, you know what? Let's, let's decide what's the most awesome stuff we could come up with and, and you know, we'll, we'll just start making a religion out of this. That's, that's a great idea. And so they get together and they like write down all their things and they go, you know what? I don't really like that one. Let's, let's trade it out for this one. And they narrow it down. They go, we got 10 really good ones, right? This isn't that. It's not a committee that got together to decide what should we do or what are some really great ways in which society should work. This is God saying, I made you, this is how you work. This, if you function like this, then you function correctly. This is God directly speaking to his people. That if God has some things to say, I think it's important for us to maybe listen, right? That God's got some, cool, some stuff to say, we might wanna lean in. We might wanna say, God, what do you think matters? Why, why are you using breath to say something? What, sh- what should I take 
from this. Matthew Henry in his commentary on the whole Bible on page 97 says this, God has many ways of speaking to the children of men. Job 33, 14, once, yea, twice, by his spirit, by conscience, by providences, by his voice, all of which we ought carefully to attend to, but he never spoke at any time upon any occasion as he spoke in the Ten Commandments, which therefore we ought to hear with the most earnest heed. Matthew Henry's calling us to say, we need to give extra attention to this because this is not like anything else you've ever heard. Now, for, uh, for those of us who maybe have heard the Ten Commandments or are familiar with the Ten Commandments, we're, we're, you're thinking, well, actually, I have heard this before. I, I have looked at this before. I have seen this before. But we've got to get outside of our sort of religious or familiar kind of an idea with this and realize that, that when we look into this, this is God speaking. And if God didn't reveal these things, then we wouldn't know that this is what's right. We wouldn't come up with this on our own. We wouldn't just say, hey, this is, you know, these are the things that we think are appropriate. No, God revealed them to us. God spoke to us, and therefore we know. Not only does, is it really imperative and massively important right there in verse 1 to understand that God's the one speaking, God is the one revealing, but also verse 2, notice what he says. That, that, that God starts to speak something. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Before God tells us what to do, he tells us who he is. Do you notice that? He hasn't said anything about what to do. Before he tells us what to do, he tells us who he is. Because relationship fuels and motivates obedience. Parents, that's a huge one. Relationship fuels and motivates obedience. I want my children to obey me, not because I rule with an iron fist and because they're afraid of me. I want them to obey me because they agree that I'm right because they understand that I love them, because they know that I'm not gonna tell them to do things just because I want to control them, but that they understand that whatever I say, even if they don't like it and they don't agree with it, it's for their best interest. It's going to help them, it's going to encourage them, it's gonna cause them to be able to flourish in the life that they have. You see, laws are different. They're seen differently when they're given by a loving dad. And that's exactly what God's saying here in verse two. He's showing himself by saying, I, I have a relationship with you. I'm not just some distant God arrogantly declaring that you've got to worship me and I'm handing down these decrees from a distance. No, God's revealing himself as near, as close. Notice what he says in this revelation of himself. He's got four things to state as both reasons for obedience and to show them how they are to be obligated to obey and we are as well. The first thing he says there in verse two is, I am the Lord. Do you see that? I am the Lord. God declares who he is because he's God, because he's creator, because he's the sustainer of life. He's the one that even thought you up. He's the one that caused you to be born. He's the one that gave you the breath that's in your lungs right now because that's who he is, because he is over all, because he is the one in supreme authority, because he's the one who is sovereign. He has the right to mandate whatever he wills, whatever he wants, he can mandate it to us. He has the right to do this. He, has, he sits in that kind of authority to be able to do so. Not only does he say, I'm the Lord, but notice the next phrase, I am the Lord, your God. He, he sort of balances out the idea of sovereignty, excuse me, with the idea of love. I'm your God. 
The, the, the idea of being your God is that he's, he's connected. He's near. He's close. He's, he's not far away. He's drawing near and revealing himself. He's committed to this relationship. You see, obedience does not earn them the adoption. It's because there are his kids that this obedience becomes possible. That's what he's saying when he says, I'm your God. Notice there, verse, uh, verse 2, the third thing that he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You see, God points back to what he did. Remember? Remember you were in captivity? Remember that this wasn't awesome? Remember that Egypt was absolutely terrible and you were being abused so much so that you were crying out for deliverance and I intervened. I didn't have to. I didn't have to do anything. I could have left you there and been completely fine and been completely holy, completely just, completely righteous, and you could have just suffered in that state, and I didn't have to do a thing about it. Same is true with you and me in our position, in our fallenness, in our sinfulness, in that wayward thing that's within our soul that keeps us away from God. God didn't have to step into human history to do a single thing about it. We are rightly condemned for our sins, and yet Jesus steps into human history God put on flesh for the sake of redeeming, purchasing you with his own blood, perfect, spotless, and holy. I, I rescued you, God says. God's pointing to this to say, uh, you're mine. And I've graciously and kindless, kindly and miraculously rescued you. What a great God. Notice the last thing he said. Uh, rescued you out of Egypt. I uh, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In case you forgot, Egypt was terrible. Don't we have a tendency to, to you know, sort of romanticize some of the past? For those of you who got saved maybe, maybe later on in life, you ever have a time where you look back and go, oh man, remember when we used to, and then you tell the story or whatever, and it's like the sinful thing that you used to do. Uh, for me, you know, I look at that and I go, how foolish how foolish. There's this weird thing within our memory that tends to exalt the things that were, that were ridiculous by painting them in a light that just makes them seem cool. Like, oh yeah, when I was cool, I did this. Or when I was awesome, I used to do this. But now I'm a Christian and I don't do those things anymore. In fact, that's a terrible way to tell your testimony, right? Life was great, then Jesus ruined it. That's, not, that's a terrible testimony. That is not that is, you don't understand the gospel if that's how you say it, right? But the gospel is, I was wrecking my life, I was ruining it, I was plunging headlong into stupidity, and while I was running as hard and fast away from Jesus, he swooped down and saved me. That's the right way to tell your testimony. That's the gospel of grace. You see, the, the nation of Israel we see later on in Exodus, they have this weird kind of uh, memory loss as well where they start going, oh, do you remember in Egypt? We had meat and we had leeks and we had all these. It was great. Oh, the days of Egypt. I wish we could just go back. What? Are you joking me? You were slaves in bondage being beaten and tortured and your children ripped from you and murdered in front of you. And like, what are you talking about? God has set you free. The best day in the world doesn't pale in comparison to the worst day in the Lord. And the same is converse as well. The worst day in the Lord is way far better than the best day you could ever have apart from him. And so God says, remember, I brought you out of, out of bondage you see, when we, hear, when we hear the word the law, we tend to think of it as some sort of restricted 
or limited or, or even an unnecessary thing. You're like, you ever driven on a road and you're like, why is the speed limit so slow? Like, who thought of this? I think they just wanted to torture me, you know? And there's sometimes where you're like, this law is completely unnecessary. This is a ridiculous kind of a law. You ever read, you ever read the tax law? You're like, nope. <laughs> yeah, there's so much nonsense going on with all of the, like when we think of law, we tend to think of it that way. We've got to understand that when, when we're approaching the idea of law, we're not looking at it in terms of humans, human laws. We're looking at it in terms of God's laws. You see, God's laws and his ways are very different. Let me illustrate it for you this way. So, um, you know, when, you, when you, take, you play music, there's some different rules about playing music. And as long as you stay within, you know, the, the bounds of those laws, When we think of laws as a restrictive thing that just holds me in and just keeps me in, we think of it exactly the wrong way. When we think of it as something that's just holding me down and keeping me back, we're thinking of it exactly the opposite of the way that God intends for us to understand it. God's laws are not saying, no, you can't have that stuff just because I don't feel like giving it to you. God is not withholding good from you. When God says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. When God says, if, you, if you're going to choose to sin, then you're also making the choice to suffer. If you stay within the laws of how it's created and how it's made, you can make music. But if you violate those laws, all you make is noise. And it's exactly the same thing with our lives. So God speaks. Not only does God speak, but also we see in verse 3 that there's a choice to make. Look at verse three. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. What I wanna do is break this down sort of phrase by phrase as well. Notice he says there in verse three, you shall have. You shall have this, this phrasing. The phrasing of the idea of you shall have, it infers that there's a choice available and that it must be made. That, that God created humanity with the capacity of volitional choice. You have the ability to choose. You can choose to worship God, you can choose not to worship God. You can choose to, you know, do a whole bunch of different things. You, you can choose what you're gonna eat for lunch this afternoon. You can choose uh, a, a lot of different kinds of concepts, a lot of different kinds of ideas, and choice is the basis of every loving relationship. The, the simple fact that I can tell my wife, Micah, I hate you, you're like, oh, don't say that. That's kind of, I'm out of here. I'm the fact that I can say that gives value to my choice to say I love you, right? If Micah holds a gun to my head and says, say I love you, then I'm like, I love you. I, I really love you, you know? Like, there's no choice involved with that, so therefore there's no value in it. It's the choice that gives it the value. Choice is not only the basis of a loving relationship, but it's also the basis of distinguishing higher creation from lower creation. Uh, your dogs cannot choose 
the way that you can choose. You're like, but my dog really loves me. I'm like, I would argue, no, your dog likes that you give it food. I I can prove it. My dog, uh, we just got one last year. My dog loves me. I'm the favorite in the family. Everyone in my family will tell you I'm the favorite. And I've purchased that position with scraps from the table. That's how I've done it. It is, it's not a secret. My kids are always like, dad, stop it. You're raising a beggar. I'm like, I know, but she loves me, you know? Um, and the same is, so, so my dog has less, less choice than I have, but also a snail has less choice than my dog, right? So there's higher and lower types of creation and the capacity to choose distinguishes that as well. Joshua 4, excuse me, 24 verses 14 through 15 says it like this. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt, excuse me, and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, you dwell, but for, excuse me, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see here, as, as God says, you shall have, he's bringing them to a crossroads of decision. He, he's establishing, it can't be anymore this willful ignorance that you're just gonna say, well, we've been living in Egypt for a long time. They've got lots of gods. And so, you know, we'll just kind of, we'll just throw Jesus in too. Well, it wasn't Jesus at the time. We'll throw the Lord in too. We'll just throw him in as well. Or, you know, just saying, you know, well, I'm just not really sure about that. And so I'm not, I'm not really gonna make a decision on that. God says, the time for that is over. I'm gonna tell you, I'm God. I'm the only one. And therefore, I need to have that position. C.S. Lewis uh, was, uh, one of the quotes from C.S. Lewis is that he said that Jesus uh, can either be the Lord, he can be a liar, or he's a lunatic. I think he said even uh, something along the lines of on the level of a poached egg uh, where, his, where his brain would be. But he can't just be a nice guy. Jesus can't just be a nice guy who lived in history and, you know, he liked to pet sheep and have little kids sit on his lap and he fed people. He's, oh man, Jesus, he's, he's such a great guy. I mean, if we just had Jesus around, then he would just feed everybody. No, he wouldn't. No, he wouldn't. That's not what he would do. When you look in the gospels, he actually rebuked the people saying, you're just around for a free lunch. What's wrong with you? He didn't, that's my paraphrase. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's in the Greek. What's wrong with you? Um, <laughs> But as you look into this, what you see is that Jesus can't just be a nice guy. To to make no decision about Jesus, to just remain neutral or on the fence about Jesus, is to make the decision that you're against him, not for him. Jesus is calling us to make a decision that we can't sit on the fence, we can't stay in the middle, we can't just play games with this and, and sort of be in the world sometimes and in the church other times. We can't be in a sinful life pursuing my insanity at one moment and then jump over and say, now I'm in Christ and everything's good over here. He's saying, no, draw the line, make a choice. Where are you gonna be? He's calling us into this kind of relationship when he's when he says, you shall have. Now notice the second phrase, not only a choice to make, but a reality to grasp. He says, you shall have no other gods. Now in this, uh, not only is there a choice to make, but also he's calling us to recognize that what is actually true and actually real. What he's saying in this, when he says there's no other gods, what he's saying is he's the only one. That's what he's saying. That, that, there, that there is only 
him. He alone is the true and living God. By saying no other gods, he's not playing a, a, you know, a game of like a weird game of the bachelorette where there's other valid contestants available. And he's saying, you know what? I'm just, I'm one of the guys. And so if you really, you know, maybe you like him, maybe you like him. Maybe you want to kiss that guy for a little while and then see if you like that. Like that show is terrible, by the way. Like, I don't know why anybody watches that nonsense. That's whatever. Anyway, all these Christian girls in the church, like, it's such a great show. No, the guy, it's like you're watching adultery on TV and you're like, this is great. Like, what's wrong? What's wrong with you? In the words of Jesus, I guess. No, it's not the words of Jesus. Anyway, stick to your notes, Cody. Stick to your notes. Um, there are no other valid options. When God says no other gods, he's not saying, well, hey, there's some other ones. You could pick them. What he's saying is there aren't any other ones. I'm the only one. Just me. You see, the human heart was designed to worship. And if we don't worship the Lord, then we will worship something else. Whether it's ourselves or uh, some other person or some, some other organization or whatever it is, you're going to worship something. You don't have a choice as to whether or not you will worship. You only have a choice as to who or what you will worship. And if you don't worship the Lord, you're worshiping a false god. Now here's the crazy thing about false gods. Deuteronomy 32, 17 says this. They offered sacrifices to demons, which are not God, to gods they had not known before, to new gods only recently arrived, to gods their ancestors never feared. You see, all false worship, including worship of yourself, is actually demon worship. That's what you're doing. When you worship anything or anybody other than the Lord God, you are participating in demon worship. It's a scary idea, isn't it? It puts all of those really nice people in other religions in a different category, doesn't it? Yeah, sure, they're nice people, but they're worshiping demons. It should drive you to want to say, hey, you can't worship the God of the Mormons. That's demon worship. It should drive you to say, you can't worship the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's demon worship. You can't worship the God of the Muslims. That's demon worship. That's where this goes. And when you understand it correctly in those terms, then it's not like, well, you have your way, I have my way, kumbaya, let's all just get together. No. God draws the line in the sand and says, I'm the only one. Everything else is demon worship. Here's how 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 20 says it. What, the, what am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has any significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm saying that the sac these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You see, Satan doesn't care what you worship, so long as it's not Jesus. Because anything other than Jesus alone will lead you into de demonic activity, demon worship. It's a, it's a scary, scary thing. It should cause us to flee from it. So here's some questions I want to ask you about how to reveal your God. What do you worship? How do you know that you're worshiping the true and living God? How do you know that you're not pursuing this demon worship? Well, who or what can you not live without? If I lose this, if I don't get this, if I can't have this, then life is over. Life has no meaning. I, I need this. Once I have this, then life will become worth it. Then life will have purpose and meaning. Who or what do you run to in times of hurt or in times of need? 
When you're, when you're hurting, when you're stressed out, when you're, when you're anxious, do you run to that bottle or to that, that drug? Do you run to that person? Do you run to that place? Do you run to that internet website? What do you run to when you're hurt or in times of need? If it's not Jesus, then you're not worshiping him. This is part of worshiping the Lord. What causes your highest joy or your lowest grief? Where does that come from? Where does your highest joy come from? Does it come from Jesus? What, what produces that lowest grief? Is it something that, that, that's, that's associated with the things of the Lord, that I've, I've sinned against the Lord, or is it just he didn't do my thing? That Jesus is, is my butler, I tell him what to do, and you know he goes and gets me my stuff, and we're gonna call that prayer. Like That's, that's craziness. If you're sad because Jesus isn't playing your game, it's because he's not willing to let you be God. Because you make a terrible God. You need him to sit as Lord God, ruler and reigner over your heart and over your life. You see, what you're, here, here's just this last thought. What is your life orbit around? What is your schedule orbit around? What is your budget Orbit around, what are your desires orbit around? What is your emotion orbit around? What is this thing that your life is just, just going and going around? If it's anything other than Jesus, it's a false God and it's going to fail you. Fail you. Now, some of this stuff isn't necessarily bad stuff, right? Like, it's not bad to have recreation. Is it, is it bad to go, to go hunting and to take some time to do that? Is it bad to go, no, praise the Lord, shoot some animals and... Give me some when you get them. Um, <laughs> there's, is it wrong to want to grow in your career and to pursue that? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to want to have kids or want to get married or, uh, or have these kinds of things in your life? Is it wrong to want to be financially stable? and to, to, to have? No, none of those things are wrong. None of those things are wrong. But here, I, I love the way Mark Driscoll says it. He says it like this. When good things become God things, they're bad things. That's a great way to say that. When you elevate stuff that's good, in order to be, to be in the position of God, you make it a bad thing. You turn it into an idol. You make it a means of worshiping demons. That, that instead, we take those good things and we submit them to the Lordship of Christ, right? That, that's the way that they go. That, yes, I pursue my career under Jesus. Yes, I love and serve my wife under Jesus. Yes, I go and shoot animals under Jesus, in Jesus' name, right? You just do it in Jesus' name. Anyway, that's what I do. Uh, and so that, that's what you should do as well. Um, and so this is what we do. We submit it all to the lordship of Jesus. Now, not only a God who speaks, uh, a choice to make, a reality to grasp, but fourthly, a priority to establish. This is what God does here. He sets a priority. Notice the end of verse three, the last couple of words there. He says, you shall have no other gods there before me. Before me. Now, there's, there's, a, only, uh, there's a choice to make. There is a reality to grasp, but there's also this reality, uh, this priority to establish here in that God is only interested in the relationship if it's a mutually exclusive one, right? It's, it's, like, it's like my marriage. 
I know I'm using that kind of a lot today, but it's one of the pictures I think that is great in the scriptures of our relationship to God, and it's, a, it's an easy one to, for us to understand. I'm not happy being one of Micah's guys, right? She, she comes to me, she's like, hey, so I, I love you, we have a great relationship, um, but I just think we should not be so exclusive. So I've got uh, this other guy and or guys, and where would you like to be? Would you like to be before them? Would you like to be beside them? Would you like to be behind them? Where would you like to be? And my answer is, I would like to be punching them in the face. That's where I'd like to be. And, and I, violence is what I think when I hear that, um, because she's mine, and I'm only interested in the relationship if it's an exclusive relationship. I'm not gonna share, like, hey, line up, guys. You can all have a kiss with my, with my wife. Like, no, it's not gonna happen. You would try that, and you're gonna find out that your lips are gonna meet something, but it's gonna be this, not her lips. Uh, that's just not the way it's gonna go. The, the, the truth is, I'm not content with having a relationship if it's not an exclusive relationship. And so, too, that's what God is saying. He's not saying you don't have any gods before me like, hey, it's cool as long as I'm on top of the pile. We tend to think of our lives that way, don't we? You have a list of priorities and then we put the thing that's the most important at the top of the list. Your life is not like a list of priorities. Your life is not linear that way. It's not this, then this, then this, then this. That is not the way your life works. Your life works much more like a circle. And the center, whatever's at the center of your life has gravity. Everything flows from it and to it, whatever that thing is at the center of your life. And what God is saying is, me and me only. I belong at the center. Not the top of your priority list, like I'm good, uh, you know, I get, I get 51% and then you divide the rest up uh, everybody else. No. He says, I get all of it. I get everything. Everything fits into the category of me. That's the way that God is speaking here. It's an extremely exclusive claim. God's not one of your loves. He's your only love. And everything else in your life either fits in the Jesus category or it doesn't fit at all. It's either in Christ, it's in the Lord, it's in God, or it's out of my life completely. That's what he's saying. I need to be the center and the gravity for your life. And if you're not willing to have that kind of relationship, then you don't know who I am, is what God is declaring. You need to see me this way. Colossians 1, 17 through 18 says, says it like this. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Do you see that word preeminence? That's this, the center of gravity is the idea of preeminence. Not first on the list. Not the guy that gets to be at the top with 51% of the pie. No, one and only. He's got the top spot and everything flows from him and to him or it doesn't fit at all. And that's the way our lives are being reor reordered. So what does your life revolve around? What's the centerpiece of it all? Jesus isn't just one of many, but the one and only. You will worship. You are worshiping something right now. And if it's not Jesus, then that thing's got to be dethroned, even if it's you. And Jesus needs to be enthroned. We were just singing it, weren't we? The king of my heart. That, that I want Jesus to be the king of my heart. And what we're declaring in that is that he's the center, the gravity around which everything else revolves 
in my life. You see, this sin that God points out here, this first sin, this first thing that God wants to point out, this very first commandment, it's the sin that these people uh, were, were most prone to. It was the most dangerous thing for them. And it's also the most dangerous for you and for me. The thing that, that is the temptation wrapped up in this is giving glory somewhere where it doesn't belong. Giving glory to something or somebody where it doesn't belong because it only belongs in Jesus. Now this single command, it destroys every philosophical or theological stance that there is. This single command, this first one, God sets this up. You see, people have a lot of thoughts and a lot of things uh, uh, about what they say about God. Everything that's philosophical or theological, uh, a stance that rejects God and seeks its own way, this single command answers all of it. Some people say, well, everything is a part of God. The trees are a part of God, the fish are a part of God, uh, the rocks are a part of God, the air is a part of God, and God says, no, I made it. I created it, I'm above it, it's not part of me, it's in submission to me. That's what God says, I alone am God. That's what he's saying. No, everything's not part of me. I'm God. It's not part of me. Some people say, well, we can become a God. You know, if we're really good and we do really good stuff and we follow these certain steps and we wear certain underwear, then we can become a God. And, and, and God says, no, I'm God. Not you. Me. Not you. That's what God says. You're not going to become a God one day. There's only one and you're not him. Some people say, well, there's lots of gods. You know, we could, we could worship this god of this thing over here, and this one, you know, the, gives us uh, kids, and this one gives us prosperity in our home, and this one gives us prosperity at work, and this one makes the weather nice, and we, there's lots of gods. And God says, no, there's one god, he, it's me, and if you're wondering if there are more gods, let me tell you, I'm here, they're not. It's just me. God says, no, I'm the only one that there is. There's just me. Some people say, well, there's no God at all. To which God says, let me check. Yep, I'm here. I exist. I'm here. Yes, there is a God. I'm here. Some, and other people, they even say, well, we, you know what? This is a super popular one in our culture today. You know, we just, we just can't really know. There's this vague, ambiguous, and, and people say that, and they're trying to be really spiritual and really awesome and seem like they're super wise, but it's just dumb. Like, no, no. Just being vague about stuff that you can be certain about, it's like, well, I don't know really if two plus two equals four. I just, I don't feel like maybe we should have two. I, I was listening to a pastor one time, and he was uh, uh, just really, you know, he was going off on feelings, um, which I think it's hilarious that he was going off on it, but you know, our culture is so wrapped up in their feelings, people don't know how to say stuff apart from their feelings. And he was in line one time at uh, Panera Bread, and uh, he was ordering a, a sandwich or something, and he didn't know what arugula was. And so he turned and asked the, the girl next to him, like in, in the line, said, hey, what's, what's arugula? And she goes, well, I feel like, like, what are you talking about? You feel, you feel what? You don't feel arugula. Arugula is something you don't tell me what you feel, you tell me what is. What is this thing? And so we're so wrapped up in our feelings. Some people say, well, you can't know if there's a God. And God says, no, I know. And I've, I'm even going to show you myself to you. Look, I wrote a book. You can read it. It's all about me. That God shows himself. And today, this same choice is before you. 
This same choice that God is declaring to his people then is before you today. And this decision is the most important decision you will ever make in your entire life. Everything else flows from this one decision. Who will be your God? Who is going to be at the center of your life? Will it be Jesus? Will he be the one that takes that center place in that gravity? Will you recognize him as your center? If you will, if you do, then what you'll do is you'll confess your sin to him. You'll recognize I have violated you. My life is a violation to you. Secondly, you'll ask him for his forgiveness because you recognize his blood was for you. That Jesus died in order to purchase you, to pay for that sin. And then you'll believe that he receives you as his own. That's called getting saved. That's called being born again. That's called becoming adopted into the family of God. And if you have never done that, then right now is the right time. You don't need anybody to pray certain words with you. You don't need anybody to, to, to do anything to you. That's just between you and the Lord. You just cry out to him. But Jesus did say that you need to make this a public kind of a thing. So I encourage you with that that if you've never given your life to the Lord, that, that you give your life to him and that you make it a public declaration. Maybe today is a day where you realize, I've given my life to the Lord, but he's not the center. I need to kick some things out. And I need to reorient my life around Jesus as the centerpiece and the gravity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the chance to study it together and we pray that you would help us to pursue you in your word, we thank you for these 10 commandments that you've chosen to reveal yourself. And we pray that you would help us to know you, to love you, and to serve you. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.